Good morning, church. Uh, Tasmania sends its welcome as well. Says g'day. Uh, hello to Tasmania. Yes, I know you're watching, some of you, so uh, God bless you as well. Now, our sermon this morning is entitled, Why We Keep Believing. And the text, is, which I've just lost, is Hebrews chapter 11. And the Bible's upside down. Chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. Right, here we go. 13 to 16. Sorry about that. And it goes, These, are, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity re to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And may the Lord bless to us that reading from his word. Awesome. Now, I'll get my glasses out so I can see what I'm doing. Why we keep believing. If you don't believe in heaven, you might as well skip this service, this sermon. And that's an odd way to begin. But it's a true statement. And truth is always a good place to start. Everything in this sermon is about heaven. And if you don't believe in heaven, then a lot of this sermon won't make any sense to you. Because there are lots of things that Christians do that can only be explained because we believe in heaven. And therein lies the problem. We believe in a place you can't see, feel, touch or otherwise apprehend using your five senses. Heaven, by definition, lies beyond the veil of this visible, seen, touchable, tangible, extremely real to us world. And since this world is the only world we are sure of, then how can we say or believe or imagine that there is another world out there, somewhere beyond the horizon, or beyond the sunset, as a Christian song puts it. Not provable by any of the means we ordinarily use when we talk about proof. I mean, how do we know there is a heaven? Answering that question isn't really the burden of this sermon because it is not the burden of my text. If you study Hebrews 11:13 to 16, you quickly see that it appears in this chapter as a kind of parenthesis, as if the writer has been extolling the faithful virtues of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham and Sarah in verses 4 to 12, and then suddenly thinks to himself, people will never believe this, so I'd better explain it. 
That's what's going on here. The writer wants us to consider why certain people do what they do. That is, why they decide to live in a way that seems radically different from the rest of the world. If you go back to Hebrews 10, 32 to 34, you find a description of the early days of the church when new believers encountered enormous hardships because of their faith. They remained faithful in spite of terrible suffering, verse 32. They were exposed to public ridicule, verse 33. They were persecuted, verse 33. They helped others who suffered the same way, verse 33. They showed sympathy to those thrown in jail, verse 34. They lost all that they had, verse 34. And here's the biggie. They accepted it all with joy, verse 34. And that's the hard part. The accepting all of this with joy. I can imagine going through some of those things and enduring it with gritty determination and a tight jaw. You know, hang in there, guys. This can't last forever, like John Wayne at the Alamo, or something like that. Sometimes life comes down to the tough-minded, not-gonna-turn-back-now decision to keep on following Jesus, even when the world collapses around you. Sometimes that's the best you can do. And I'm always in awe of people who can say, I'm not giving up, when quitting would be the easier option. But that's not exactly what the writer is talking about. He's somewhere beyond that when he says that they, the first readers, had accepted it all with joy. Now that's hard to do. But this way of living, this smiling when you are robbed, that's how Christians live. Again, that's a tough topic to get your mind around. And I think the writer knew that. So that's why he added this word of explanation in Hebrews 10.34. For you knew you had a much more solid and lasting treasure in heaven. That's the Phillips translation. Other translations use phrases like a better and enduring possession, New King James. But I like how the Christian English version puts it. You endured this because you knew you had something better, something that would last forever. That's a good description of heaven. It's better than anything we have on earth. And unlike the things on earth, heaven lasts forever. So we give up what we have here because we can't keep it anyway. And we know we've got something better that's coming that will never be taken away from us. On a trip to Beijing, a man saw an inscription on the back of a large sign that marks the entrance to the English Language Institute of China. As, he approached the as you approach the building, you see the sign that announces the building. 
But as you leave the building, you see inscribed on the back of the sign the famous words of Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It is precisely that spirit that has animated the spread of the gospel for over 2,000 years. And it explains as well as anything can why Christians live the way they do. It's all about heaven. So if you don't believe in heaven, you won't live like a Christian. And it won't make much sense to you at all. But if you do believe in heaven, that's, what on, that's what's on the writer's mind in Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. He interprets his long list of heroes who lived by faith to take us behind the scenes so we can ask some questions. Abel, why would you offer a better sacrifice and end up getting killed by your brother? Enoch, why would you walk with God and then disappear? Noah, why would you build an ark that everyone except your family thought you were crazy? Abraham, why would you leave the security of Ur to trek off into the unknown? Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, why would you live in tents for generations? Abraham and Sarah, why would you dream of having a baby? when you are 190 years old, respectively. These are not hypothetical questions. They go to the heart of why we do what we do, including why we do some things that the world regards as utterly ridiculous. So how do we explain ourselves? The answer is, it's all about heaven. And if heaven isn't real, then we have wasted our lives chasing after a dream that turns out to be nothing at all. To put it another way, why do we keep believing? Hebrews 11, 13 to 16 offers three answers to that question. Number one, we live by a different standard. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted they were aliens and strangers on this earth. What he means is all the heroes of faith lived and died without ever fully entering into what God had promised them. They were like sailors who saw the shoreline a great distance away and stood at the rail, waving and shouting and saying, Look, there it is. What a beautiful land. And look at all those people that are waving back at us. The sailors see the land, but their ship never reaches the shore. So they sail on, left with their memories of a harbour that never, they never seem to reach. Christians are aliens and strangers on earth. In our shrinking and increasingly crowded world, we are all 
continually reminded that we aren't from around here. If we get on a bus in a strange city, <coughs> excuse me, we look for someone who looks like us. And travelling in a large city overseas can be a scary experience if we don't speak the language. And sometimes, even if we do, especially when we see people looking at us, whispering to each other, and sometimes laughing at us or pointing. During a visit to Jerusalem, a group of tourists made its way through the old city and they were accosted by a very angry man who began shouting at them and waving his arms about, making various political statements and uttering vague threats. Now that's unnerving because you can't engage a man like that in a rational discussion or things will quickly escalate. All you can do is keep walking and remember we are not from around here. Christians are truly not from around here. That's the whole point of verse 13. We are from somewhere else, a realm not visible or touchable, We've got a passport that says, citizen of heaven. Secondly, we die with a different hope. But there's more to this story. People who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Verse 14 to 16a. John Wesley, the father of the Methodist movement, used to say, Our people die well. Dying well is something of a lost art these days. We don't talk about it or preach about it or think about it. And we certainly don't train our people in how to do it. We have grief recovery sessions that help those who have lost loved ones. But when was the last time you attended a class on how to die well? The Puritans saw things differently. They preached a great deal to their people about how to die well, full of faith and hope and joy in the Lord. By this, they did not mean how to plan your own death, your own funeral, nor did they intend to suggest that you could somehow avoid the sudden death that comes to so many people. But they meant to train their people so that they would live with a conscious, abiding faith in Jesus Christ to the very end of life. And that they would give a joyful testimony to the watching world they left behind. In an essay called You'd Cry Too If It Happened to You, Peggy Noonan ponders what happens when we lose our faith in a world beyond this world. After considering the many advancements of the last 500 years, she concludes that while life in every way is much easier nowadays, we are not happier people. I believe we are just cleaner, healthier, more attractive, sad people than what we used to be. 
I think we have lost the old knowledge that happiness is overrated. That, in a way, we have lost somehow that sense of mystery about us, our purpose, our meaning, our role. Our, answers be our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood this to be the solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short one. We are the first generations of men that actually expected to find happiness here on earth. And our search for it has caused such unhappiness. The reason, if you do not believe in another higher world, if you believe only in the flat material world around you, if you believe that this is your only chance at happiness, if that is what you believe, then you will not be disappointed when the world does not give you a good measure of its riches and you are despairing. The writer to the Hebrews is making the same point in his own way. In earlier generations, people believed in two worlds and they knew that the next world was the real world. The one that they knew that the next world was the real world, the one that would last forever. And so they lived in this world, the solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short one, with one eye looking forward to the next one. They understood that this world could not, cannot and does not bring you ultimate happiness. And so we believe there is another world. Hebrews 11 calls it a country of their own and a better country, a heavenly one. We are destined to live and die feeling slightly and maybe more than slightly out of place. A famous southern gospel song called This World Is Not My Home says it this way. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh Lord, I know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, oh Lord, what can I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. What difference does it make? This vision of a world beyond this world. There are many answers, I suppose, but the one in verse 15 is extremely satisfying. That vision of heaven keeps us moving forward when it would be easier to give up and go back. Spurgeon had a marvellous sermon on this text called simply, Go Back? Never. He points out that if you want to stay out, you'll or if you want a way out, you'll always find one. Quitters always have an excuse. So do backsliders and complainers and compromisers. When you get entangled with this world, as we all do from time to time, we find that it does not satisfy the way we thought it would. No one 
is more miserable than a Christian living in sin. We can sin, and we certainly do, and we can make really stupid choices, and we do, and sometimes we can persist in single ways, in sinful ways for a long time. But, and mark this carefully, true Christians cannot be truly happy in sin. Having pledged to follow Jesus Christ, we will not be happy hanging out with the devil's crowd. Spurgeon gives us his whole message in just one sentence. Our expectations are our largest possessions. That's really good. Those six words sum up the whole Christian life and why we keep believing. We have expectations of something much better than anything this world has to offer. Near the end of his sermon, Spurgeon applies the text this way. Don't expect the men of this world to treat you as one of themselves. If they do, be afraid. Dogs don't bark when a man goes by that they know. They bark at strangers. When people slander and persecute you no longer, then be afraid. If you are a stranger, they naturally bark at you. Don't expect to find comforts in this world that your flesh would long for. This is our inn, not our home. We tarry here one night and we are away in the morning. That's why we don't go back. That's why we don't turn around. That's why we keep our eyes always on heaven. We live by a different standard and we die with a different hope. Death for the believer is not what it is for the unbeliever. For those who know Jesus, death is going home, to our real home, our eternal home, to the place where when we get there, we will say, this is where I belong. Thirdly, we look for a different reward. Our text ends with a word about our hope for the future. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Verse 16. Hebrews 11 twice mentions the idea of a city. Verse 10 says that Abraham was looking for a city with eternal foundations, designed and built by God. And now in verse 16 we are told that God has prepared that city already. We can gl glean many things from this. But let's focus on what cities are all about. They are all about people. If you have ever lived in a large city, then you know what I mean. Cities are crowded places. This was hard for me to get used to when we first moved to Dandenong after growing up in a small country town in the Woomera called Garoke. I wasn't prepared for the hustle and the bustle and the traffic it's hard to get used to living in the midst of so many different people. 
I can still remember my total consternation when we first rented our home at East Dandenong. It was a tiny house on a tiny lot. The neighbours were too close for my comfort. A fact I learned the hard way when I was singing in the shower one morning and heard someone next door sarcastically yell out, Hey, nice voice! I remembered to shut the window next time. The concept of the heavenly city means that we won't be alone any longer. We will be with the Lord and end with his people forever. And all that we need will be right at our fingertips. Not long ago, Harry Balbach said he was a member of the Heavenly Fruit of the Month Club. What's that? Revelation 22.2 says that in the New Jerusalem there is a great river flowing from the throne of God down the middle of Main Street. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit. The river... No. 12... Yeah, sorry, I've lost my place. On each side of the river there was, stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Just think of it as God's provision for all his people, always and forever. Our text ends with this wonderful thought. God is not ashamed to be called our God. Sometimes we are ashamed of each other. More often we are ashamed of ourselves. There are moments, and plenty of them, when we look in the mirror and say, you ought to be a better person by now. Who amongst us has not ever felt that way? You asked forgiveness and then you did it again. You lost your temper. You ate too much. You said something unkind about a friend. You broke a promise, then covered it up. You blamed someone else for what you did. You exaggerated to make yourself look good. You couldn't stop complaining. You neglected to pray. You sinned in secret. You murdered in your heart. You committed adultery in your heart. You were harsh with your own children. You broke your vows to God. If you look in the mirror long enough, you are bound to feel bad about yourself. Romans 3.23 applies to the Christian too. That's why Martin Luther stressed justification by faith as the chief doctrine of the faith. It is our only hope of heaven. If we plan to make it by moral reformation, we'll never get there. So how is it that God is not ashamed of us when we are so ashamed of ourselves? It has exactly to do with his grace. 20 seconds and the clock is running. When you start out in the Christian life, you realise that you have a long way to go. But you think to yourself, I've got a lifetime to grow in grace. Even though you know you'll never reach perfection in this life, you assume that over the years you will grow much closer to God. 
And while you struggle with various sins, bad habits and a long list of negative tendencies, you think, someday I'm going to be a better person after all. And when someone points out a weakness to us, what do we usually say? I'm working on that. Which means, give me time and I'll get better. But what if you don't live long enough to make even the elementary progress you planned on making? Suddenly, you are looking up at the scoreboard and where you thought you were in the middle of the second quarter with plenty of time left in the game, to your dismay, the clock shows 20 seconds left in the fourth quarter and the clock is running. What do you do then? It's either the grace of God or it's nothing at all. But God demonstrates his own love to us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you see the word still? Still sinners? The word still comes from a tiny Greek word, eti, E-T-I. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. But that little word eti applies to us too. We were and are still sinners. The pastor got up and said something like this. I realised for the first time that I am going to heaven because of that little Greek word, eti. I am still a sinner and I don't have any time to get better and when I die, I'm resting my hope on the fact that Christ died for me while I was still a sinner. That is the true gospel of Christ. That's what being saved really means. That's our entire hope of heaven. All of us who believe, even the best among us, have so far to go that we'll never live long enough to get there on our own. Someone else has to do the work for us. Lewis Sperry Chafer said that believing in Jesus means trusting him so much that if he can't take me to heaven, I'm not going to go. I like that. Believing in Jesus means risking it all on him. There is no plan B. There is no plan B. Jesus is my only hope of salvation and heaven. Romans 10.12 says that those who trust in Jesus will never be put to shame. Hebrews 11.16 tells us something even more wonderful. God is not ashamed to be the God of very imperfect people who put their trust in him. He never looks down from heaven and says, you're such a loser, I'm finished with you. He is not ashamed to be the God of those who trust in him. When I typed those words, I started smiling because they give me so much hope. As we stand at the end of this year, we must trust him who knows what is in store for us next year and he has it all under control why do we keep believing because there is no god like our god no savior like jesus 
He does not judge us by what we are, but by what we will soon, one day, become. He has destined us for heaven. And no matter how many mistakes we may make along the way, his grace is more than sufficient to cover them all. He intends to take all his redeemed children to heaven. And not one of them, not one, will fail to make it. Some of us will run triumphantly. Others will stumble across the finish line. But by grace, we will prevail because God is not ashamed to be our God today, tomorrow and forever. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we know that you have prepared a place for us in heaven. Lord, we know that through your Son, Jesus Christ, and his blood shed for us, we can have full and free salvation. Lord, we pray that as this week unfolds, Lord, that you will speak to our hearts and minds and remind us that you are not ashamed to own us. Lord, we just pray this in and through your name. Amen. Thank you, Pauline.